and welcome to AUSU's Open Mic. I'm Karen Fletcher, your Student Union President, and today we have a special guest with us, Anne-Marie Scott, the Deputy Provost. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Hi, Karen. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming. Now, I know before I was a student executive, I had never heard of a provost, let alone a Deputy Provost. So I was wondering if we could start by you telling students, um, what is a Deputy Provost and what do you do here at AU? Sure, no problem. The joke I usually make is deputy provost is anything the provost doesn't want to do. That's what the deputy bit means. But that's not strictly true. It's just a bad joke. Um, My full title is deputy provost academic operations. So I do backstop our our provost, Dr. Matt Prinius. um, But my day to day role is to look after areas like learner support services so mental health, accessibility, counselling and our office, the registrar um, and our centre for learning accreditation, which is where prior recognition of learning um, work happens. Um, And then I also have, uh, because of my personal background that I bring to AU, a leadership role on our integrated learning environment programme. So some of you may have heard me speak or heard things I've read, things I've written um, in that context, uh, particularly around the new Brightspace learning environment, which we're rolling out at the moment. So quite a lot. I do quite a lot. Yeah, that's quite the portfolio. So one of the things that students deal with a lot, a, a big part of university, as it were, seems to be exams. Um, and I know students have a lot of different feelings uh, from exams from, hey, it's really difficult to find the time to um, issues with proctoring and or, or even things like exam anxiety. So why do we have exams? Like, how did we get to this place that exams are how we evaluate student learning? Yeah. Why do we have exams? Now, that is a leading question that's much bigger than AU. Why, yes. why, does, why does higher education have exams? And, and I think some of it is, is it's just historical. We probably, you know, th- those of us who are in leadership positions now probably sat exams when we were in university, I want to say two weeks ago, but sadly, several <laughs> decades ago now. Um, and I think there's a little bit of, of kind of comfort factor in there. We do what we know. Um, exams also, uh, in some ways, are, um, I'm going to say cheap, but what I mean by that is they they scale pretty easily. Hmm. Um, so I think I think some of it is is really a historical artifact. And, and you probably can't fail to have noticed that there's been an increasing conversation around assessment in higher education that probably accelerated under the pandemic but you know why why do we assess what are we trying to assess what are the best routes for doing that um and i think the pandemic has really blown that open for Mm -hmm. us um and and work that we've done here at au on reimagining our principles for assessment that directly came out of that but much like other universities change change is slow and sometimes not always within our control we were chatting just before we we started recording um that there are there are external influences on eu so in i'm going to call them regulated programs but you know programs that have external accreditors like nursing or maybe accounting or um, other areas of, of eu we have to meet the standards of external bodies and they may lay down um uh information for us on how assessment should be conducted and we don't really have a choice so nursing for example you know there there are exams in nursing and there will always have to be exams in nursing until the regulator change changes their mind so 
Um, there's there's a whole number of factors. Some of it's kind of cultural. Some of it's about you know what's easy to do, and some of it's about cultural stuff that lives beyond EU. But let's so, be clear: there there are some times when an exam is actually the right way to assess as well. So it's not that every exam is bad. Right. But I do think I do think in higher education as a whole, and, and EU is no difference. The balance is wrong. So when do you think an exam is the right way to assess, sorry, and when do you think an exam is the wrong way to assess a student's learning? Um, that's, that's a really excellent question. I mean, I think exams are often about um, demonstrating knowledge recall in a constrained set of circumstances. So there are some times when you're trying to... Um, when you're trying to get students to demonstrate that they they know stuff that in, in an open book exam could be very easily uh, Googled. So human anatomy might be a good example of that. I'm a firm believer that you know doctors and medical professionals should have remembered and, and memorized a whole bunch of stuff about human anatomy before they get anywhere near anybody. And, and that's a kind of recall thing. Um, and yes, that's completely, you know, an open book exam, it would be very easy to to cheat that, if you like. So so there's maybe an example of where an invigilated closed book exam might be the right way to, to test something. Um, I'll, I'll offer a sometimes controversial opinion. Um, when you get to things like uh, tax law, I've heard the same argument made for tax law that you need to be able to recall tax law very quickly. Um, I'm not sure that that's actually true. Tax law can change. And I think more often in that situation, it's your ability to find the answer that, that we need to assess mm. rather than can you memorize the correct answer under under pressure. Um, so I, I, I and those are those are two very narrow examples. There's a whole a whole spectrum um, of examples for where exams would be appropriate. But I do think that there is a, a large number of assessments that don't need to be closed book invigilated exams that could be um, that could give students more agency and opportunity to demonstrate their own knowledge and perhaps maybe even shape the format of the assessment. And we have we have a good number of courses like that at the EU already, and quite a number in the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences and, and also in maths where students are choosing their own project topic or choosing their own assessment topic um, as, rather than sitting a final exam. So for if we had a course where an exam isn't the ideal situation, but we have an exam, um, what's stopping a faculty from just switching assessment methods? Um, and the reason I ask is because I find that the longer I'm in this job, the more cogs I realize are in the wheel, um, that you don't necessarily see from the student side. So why can't a faculty member just say, no, I decided no more exam. So the answer is they can, but then the, uh, the time it takes to put that into action is is where perhaps some of the barriers come because they then have to um, work with our course production teams inside the faculty so get together with a learning designer and think about um, you know their learning outcomes for the course think about what other kind of assessment might meet those learning outcomes or test those learning outcomes they might then need to start adjusting some of the content in the course 
um, maybe to you know to frame up the assessment a little differently or provide some extra background to it. Um, and then there's the actual business of turning that all into a course inside our learning environment, which our course production teams have to do. And those teams are consistently busy <laughs> maintaining our courses as well. Textbook versions change, links break, um, you know, people leave and other people taking on the courses have different ideas. Um, subject areas change, some subject areas move quite fast and we need to keep our courses current. So something like an assessment change then goes into a bigger sort of pipeline of work mm -hmm. and gets prioritised against all of those other things. Um, and, and sometimes could be quite quick to do, but other times might be quite time consuming or, or you know, might be stuck further back in the, the pipeline, maybe behind a, you know, a textbook change, which if we don't turn it around quickly, means a course has to close. And so those are some of the nasty kind of trade-offs we have to make at times. Is it better to do something like a textbook change to make sure more courses stay open, full stop, and give students wider choice? Or is it better to fix an assessment in one particular course, maybe at the expense of, of that wider choice? So, so all those sorts of um, prioritization conversations come into it and, and, and those happen within the indivi individual faculties. Hmm. So do you think that AU is in this respect more flexible than brick and mortar institutions or less flexible than brick and mortar institutions in terms of the flexibility and individual faculty member has to change their courses from iteration to iteration? I think we're probably about the same um, insofar as every academic has academic freedom. I think that because we are an online institution, um, you know, we've got to actually produce the course that supports mm. that assessment in a different way to a brick and mortar institution. So that probably does um, introduce a, a little bit more of a, a timing delay. I would say the flip side of that is that, you know, brick and mortar institutions do insist on herding everybody into big exam halls um, on a set day of the year. And, yeah. and you know, so so there's, a, again, there's another trade-off there. Yes, maybe it's, it's slightly slower for us to change our assessments, but we do offer more flexibility in terms of when assessments can be taken than a brick and mortar institution would. Um, yeah, I I have a previous degree and I remember getting a schedule and they'd be like, oh yeah, you're gonna get it December 1st and you just have to come to the exam. And all of us who worked in retail were like, I had to give my Christmas availability like six weeks ago. Like, I don't even know how, yeah. it was a bit of a disaster. I remember sitting my finals in, when we had those dreadful finals and in, in my degree, so, fourth year exams but basically the you pass or fail your entire degree based on those fourth year exams mm. and I had to sit 12 exams three hours each all handwritten in 14 days yeah that sounds unpleasant <laughs> it, was, it was deeply unpleasant <laughs> to put things mildly but it became a, an exercise in persistence and mm. that's really that's really stuck with me you know what was actually being assessed there it, it was really something about my ability to memorize and then dump, memorize and dump and, and, you know, how strong my hand was for handwriting. Yeah. I feel that. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's something we hear from students and I've ha definitely had conversations where someone is like, listen, I can do this, but the anxiety during those three hours means that 
you don't necessarily see that the same way as if you just wanted me to demonstrate the skills. And so I know that that's something that students have really strong feelings about, about whether or not that that proctored exam is is a really good measure of how well they have mastered a particular skill. Yeah, and that's an ongoing conversation, um, you know, again, wider than AU, you know, mm-hmm. what, what are exams testing? And, and in some ways, it is about, you know, your, your ability to persist through something uncomfortable. Um, I do know I have friends who've deliberately taken degree programs where they can avoid courses with exams for exactly that reason. That um, is a frequent but... question on the Facebook group. What <laughs> yeah. is a course that fits these requirements with no exams? Yes. And so that, again, I'll come back to the principles for reimagining assessment work that we did, which really tried to lay out some, create a more permissive environment. So lay out some principles for what we think assessment should be and what it should support to try and, you know, give our colleagues um, permission, I guess, to change away from exams and to be explicit that the institution wants this, um, you know, taking into, into consideration the the constraints and you know workload issues of massively changing lots of courses but it's also prompted um, that work has also prompted some bigger questions about assessment load as well so I know in the Faculty of Science and Technology Dean Shauna Zentino has been looking at you know are, are we just over assessing in general mm. uh, as, as appointed a new associate dean in, in that area to you know very specifically take a look at that across that faculty's um, courses. And again, not dissimilar to work I did at Edinburgh, that was a common topic in medical education, to what extent are we over-assessing? And it's, that's a really interesting area in terms of you've got to do enough assessment to meet the regulator's requirements. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, maybe maybe not stress out doctors who are, usually those courses are pretty hard. So Yeah. Well, one thing I hear from students is the frustration where there's a tension between there's lots of assessment in some courses, but not a lot of feedback. Because the point, I mean, we're all here to learn, right? No one, no one is, well, I guess, I suppose maybe, but most of us aren't here to just check that box. Um, and so for some students to to work really hard on an essay or or something, say, and hand it in and be like, oh, well, I have assessment. I apparently have a 78%, whatever that means, but I don't have feedback. I don't know how to improve. I don't know where they think I'm weak where they think I'm strong um, is something we hear a lot from students. And again, AU is no different. <laughs> to, oh, to for sure. Different. No, and then, I mean, I'm not, you know, that's not a defensive comment. I think what I'm, these are big questions that higher mm-hmm. education is grappling with right now. And yes, what what is assessment for immediately throws up the question of, well, where does feedback fit? Um, and we talk about assessment of learning versus assessment for learning. And assessment for learning is absolutely, you know, the space where feedback becomes incredibly important. So if you're trying to validate that somebody knows something, assessment of learning might be the phrase you would use there. But but f- feedback in terms of um, how you can improve. But I think there's also another element of feedback that's incredibly important. And some really interesting research done in Australia in this space around evaluative judgments and and this really speaks to some of you know the imagined strategy around lifelong learning so not just understanding how to improve in the future but understanding um being able to evaluate your own learning 
So not just tips and tricks for what to do better next time, but something deeper that you actually mm. have some reflective capability. So that even if you uh, approach a different assessment in a different topic, you have some, you, you've had some uh, opportunity through a feedback process to develop some, some different skills around just evaluating where you're at and how much you know and how, how comfortable you are and where you think your gaps might be. And I think that's where feedback becomes incredibly strong because it, it goes beyond individual courses. But, but, you know, exams are, are especially exams at the end of a course, are a classic example of, um, you know, there's no point in giving feedback at that point because it's too late. It's the, it's the final assessment in the course. So, again, it comes back to what is that exam for? Is mm. it to validate that something has been learned or is it to help the learner understand what they've learned and again I think this is where some of the tension around exams as a format starts to appear. So before the pandemic exams could be on paper or on a computer and we switched to just on a computer can you speak a bit about like why was that choice made and, and what's the benefit of just having them online? Sure. So so we were already working on a digitization project before the pandemic started to okay. try and flip many more of our exams to paper, uh, sorry, away from paper. <laughs> Part of the, the reason for that is that um, posting exam scripts and couriering them all over the country is a time consuming process. It's, it's also expensive, but it means students have to book their exams that much further in advance. Right. Um, because we've got to securely post something to an exam centre somewhere. And, and it, 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 I think we had a 20 day notice period yep. for booking before. So, you know, it, it logistically it's complicated, complicated and it, it removes a bit of flexibility for students. Um, obviously, in the pandemic, um, we also rely on a large network of invigilation centres across the country. Um, we used to run our own in Edmonton and Calgary uh, and in Athabasca. Um, and then we relied on that wider network all across the country. And of course, they all closed. Um, nobody wanted random people coming in off the street to sit exams. And, no. and you know, COVID hygiene protocols was something arriving in the mail, even safe to touch or open. So we really had to flip very fast to um, digital or alternative forms of assessment. And, and I think in the very early days of the pandemic, we went back to... In some areas, we went back to uh, much older forms of assessment that we've used when EU was first um, first created. We did an awful lot of oral examination. And yeah, I had a lot of those. Yeah, <laughs> some areas went back to doing oral exams because um, students needed the flexibility. Um, and you know, sometimes if you don't have a good network connection, that was the only way to facilitate. Uh, you know, an exam situation. So there's a lot of there was a lot of creativity in that space and, and also a lot of, you know, pragmatically doing what what could be made to work for for individuals. Um, I think the whole world was doing that at that. Yeah. Point. But but we were already heading down that digitization road. So it then didn't make any sense to walk that back. Um, rather, we, you know, put, put the pressure on to try and move towards the kind of solutions we want in the future. So some of our big maths exams, for example, we've moved them on to a specialist mathematics uh, platform called Mobius um, and been able to introduce that for, I think, Math 215 is where we put the, uh, the exams in there. But we're now able to use that platform 
for further courses in mathematics and it can do a whole lot more than our learning environment can and I have a feeling you might be taking one of the newer courses designed on on Mobius um and I don't think I am I think because I'm taking mathematical modeling and that doesn't have an exam which shocked and delighted me well no but it, it Mobius isn't just being used for exams that's that's my my point. Oh, I see what you're saying. We brought it in for Math 215 because we needed an exam solution very quickly there. But it is it is a specialist maths assessment tool. So um, I know other courses are now being designed to use it for formative assessments. So, you know, oh, I see what you're saying. Quizzes and things within the course, but but proper mathematical formula that are evaluated in real time. And um, so that, you know, that starts to some of what we've done in that exam digitization space has started to give us different tools and options for for how we do other kinds of assessment or, or learning activities inside courses. Um, so we don't really want to back away from that, um, but it does mean that we we you know we're in this situation now where most of our assessments, vast majority, are digital, right, um, and. And so we do end up maybe with some of our invigilation network sites not always able to support some some of them were better able to support paper than they were digital. Um, they were. So I think there's some work to do around our invigilation network as well and maybe expanding it a little further. So many people are now have been introduced to ProctorU through the pandemic. Um, and I know that there are a number of different uh, services that offer remote proctoring services. So why did AU pick ProctorU as opposed to one of the other ones? So AU already had ProctorU before the pandemic. So right. had, it was one of the options along with our invigilation network. It was there as the, the blend. But obviously when the pandemic hit, it, it became the only way. Um, yeah. It became the only invigilation center, if you like, that we could offer. Um, and I think all of the companies in that space kind of boomed. And um, the yes. reason we are with ProctorU very specifically is that they're one of a very small number of suppliers who use human proctors. Um, there are a larger number of proctoring companies out there who use AI proctors. Um, and there's also a large amount uh, of research out there to show that um, there are some significant problems in that space, particularly around um, racial bias and uh, bias against, uh, you know, people with accessibility requirements, for example. These are very crude tools, you know, very bluntly. Do they always recognize a person of color's skin tone? No. Um, If you have um, a facial tick, perhaps, or, you know, your eyes perhaps move in a way that the camera doesn't think is normal. And I'm using ear quotes for normal here. You can be flagged for cheating um, just, you know, because of the way you are in in your body. Um, And we talked about exam stress earlier. I think it's stressful enough without feeling like you're, you know, your body's being policed in that way as well. Um, So, yeah, we use AI. We use uh, we don't use AI proctors. We use human proctors. And that's that's pretty important to us. Is it perfect? No. Um, And I think both myself and our our provost, uh, Matt, would quite have quite regularly said we would cheerfully remove all proctoring from the institution if we could and, and 
Uh, but that goes hand in hand with removing as many exams from the institution as we can. And I think what we saw and what everybody saw through the pandemic was that whilst exams might be cheap and easy to operate um, under normal circumstances, actually in the pandemic, they became very difficult yeah. to, to administer. And so there's a real question for any university, I think, in terms of kind of business continuity almost or sustainability. Um, I, I hope there won't be another pandemic. I rather suspect there will be. Um, and and goodness knows there are enough other kinds of crises that occur in the world. Um, so I, I think this is something we're going to have to look at, not just through an academic lens, but also through a, a kind of business continuity lens, because I, I, I think we're going to continue to be pressured. Climate change is real. Think about wildfires and floods and the impact they've had in Canada in the last couple of years over and above the pandemic. Yeah, and while they may be inexpensive compared to other forms of assessment for the university, they're not for students. And I know one of the frustrations we've heard is that when you apply for student loans, you have to tell them, you know, these are my living costs, these are my my tuition and, and scholar costs, but you're not actually, there's not a spot to put in, these are my proctoring costs and, and they can check if what your tuition is. So. So there's a cost that's not used to assess how much financial need a student has. So that's been um, a difficult needle to thread for a lot of students because it really, if you have courses with two exams and you're taking five of them, that's a significant amount of money. Yeah, it is. And I think this is where EU's, um, I'm going to use the words business model, but our, our flexible delivery um we do things differently to other institutions and it can make it quite difficult to do an apples for apples comparison. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we do supply textbooks to learners, which most other institutions don't. And the, the charge that we charge learners, the, the learning resource fee um, is not the cost of those textbooks. They cost substantially more. Um, many millions more are spent on learning resource, delivering learning resources to learners than mm -hmm. is ever recouped through that fee. Um, and we charge for exams if you if you use a, a an invigilation service that charges. So it, it could be a face-to-face -face one or it could be Proctor U. Um, and that's that is different to other institutions. It is. Um, I think probably it comes out in our students' favour, given what textbooks cost these, these days. Um, but that won't be true for every course, I'm sure. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, it does make it very difficult to, um, to compare. And you're right, it, because it's not the norm, it does make it a little difficult to plan ahead as well. I mean, beyond not having a place to put it in your financial aid application, um, you possibly just don't realise that yeah. that's come down the, the pike until later um, so again I, I think this is back to why Matt and I led the work around reimagining assessment um, that we do recognize that there's, there's all sorts of good reasons why too many exams doesn't doesn't help our students so I think a lot of students assume Proctor U is the only option or, or um, but I do know that there are some options in person can you tell us a little bit about how to find a place you can do an exam that's already approved from AU? Yes, absolutely. So if you go to um, the student support web pages and the information about taking exams, there are links there 
to our invigilation network. And then there are some search tools that you can use to, to look for invigilation centers in different provinces and see what's near you. And there's a real range there. Um, it could be another post-secondary institution, it could be a school, it could be a public library, it could be an individual. Um, and there is always the option, if a student is in perhaps a really remote location, to have a conversation with the Office of the Registrar about whether somebody else or, or could be added to that invigilation network or whether there can be um, you know, a, a, a one-time permission. Um, one example that I've had a couple of times is um, students serving in the military um, mm -hmm. and a, a commanding officer has stepped in and been the invigilator for their AU exam. And we're quite happy to allow that for that one student in that situation. So yes, you can find the information on our website and, and search for what's already in place. Um, and I think information about cost is usually there as well. Yeah. Um, but then there is also the option for uh, a little bit of conversation if you are in quite you know, different circumstances because we recognize our learners are, are everywhere in Canada and beyond. So if we had a student who, let's say that they're at the start of the degree, so they're staring down a whole number of years of exams, and there's not one of those centers near them, and for whatever reason, Proctor U is just not going to work. Some students don't have broadband, some students don't have a private place to write, um, and they wanted to get sort of someone on that list, um, someone added to that list of they'll, they'll be able to write their exams with that institution or person for the course of their degree. Um, what does that look like and how much time does a student need to, to get that in place to make sure that their community has a place that they can write exams if they study at AU? So in terms of time, that that is that will that will be based on a, a case by case basis and what they're proposing. Sometimes there's a bit of a conversation backwards and forwards about what's appropriate and, and what's not. And um, but in general, yes, we would be completely open to that. And it, it, the trick is is um, probably that first exam when when they first hit that first exam, um, mm -hmm. enough time to work with the office, the registrar to put appropriate arrangements in place. And then if there's a conversation about, well, I'm going to need this ongoing, then then that kind of arrangement can be can be maintained ongoing. And maybe in some cases it will be at, we add another um, invigilation centre to the network, perhaps a local high school or something like that, or another local library. Um, in other cases, it might be an individual um, and, and somebody in their community that, that they're going to work with that we are confident in, and, and it will be specific to that individual and, and persist with them. So if, let's say there's a student, they just started their first course a couple weeks ago, and they, they need to write an exam in a month and a half. Um, 45 days from now when when should they contact it's the office of the register they need to chat to yep and they should get in contact with them as quickly as they can okay um, because there may be some questions about what they're proposing um and and some more information that we need to be comfortable um so yes look at the exam look at the assessment information in your course look at the invigilation network look at you, and if those are problematic and there's a gap there, then get in touch with the Office of the Registrar as quickly as you can. Always better to be early and get, get your arrangements yeah. in place in good time <laughs> um, than leave it to the last minute and, and have some stress. So you mentioned it had to be someone appropriate. So for someone who's never done this before, because I've always 
written at, I, I live in a city that has multiple assessment centers already approved, what would be someone appropriate and what would be someone inappropriate? And how does the Office of the Register figure that out? So a really simple example might be um, a teacher in a local school versus your mum. Mm. Um, and that's that is I mean I have had that scenario can a family member invigilate now I'm sure your mum holds you to the highest standards possible and is entirely trustworthy but there is a big conflict of interest there so we would right. not be able to say okay to that one even if your mum is also a teacher in the local high school but um you know if, if another teacher in that local high school was able to invigilate you there's no conflict of interest in there or that the same conflict of interest doesn't exist. And so we would likely be happy with that. And to be clear, that could be a person coming into your home and invigilating in your home, mm. um, or it could be you going to a place and and you know, sitting an exam in somebody else's space. Both of those things are possible. I've heard of libraries as well. I think a number of students have gotten approval to write at libraries because most oh. communities have those. Public libraries absolutely are are one of the uh, yeah quite quite you'll see a lot of public libraries in the invigilation network. Um, it's a service that a lot of them provide um, because a lot of them are kind of learning hubs beyond the the lending function that they provide anyway. They are libraries are wonderful. I love them. <laughs> um, public libraries. We'll just put that out there. A big shout of thanks for public libraries. Yeah. All right. Well, I really appreciate you making the time. We always end, or well, I always end with some lighter questions so you can kind of exhale a little bit. <laughs> um, what is that? So everyone I'm sure has noticed that Amory has an accent. You're from Scotland. What is your favorite British food that you can't find in Canada? Twiglets. And now what are twiglets? What a twiglet is. <laughs> well, it's a savory snack that looks like a twig. <laughs> so that makes it sound really appealing. It's a sort of wheat-based snack. It's baked and it does it sort of knobbly like a twig. And it's covered in um a savory uh flavoring, which we also eat as a spread in the UK called Marmite. Oh, I've it's heard of Marmite. Yeah, so, so Vegemite would be the Australian equivalent. Um, Marmite, it's a yeast-based, um, mm -hmm. yeast extract paste. It's got a really strong kind of savoury, umami kind of flavour. And as a joke in the UK, it's, it's one of those foods that polarises people. You either love it or you hate it. And I am so far down the love it. <laughs> but I, I have I have um, twiglets shipped to me from the UK. And this Christmas, I actually um, caved for the first time ever and bought big buckets of them from one of those um Brits abroad in Canada stores so awesome. I haven't had the British version but I had an Australian friend who had me try the the Australian version the the Vegemite and mm -hmm. I was like I feel neutral about it which was apparently the most shocking thing anyone has ever said to her about this snack she's that like it's <laughs> so like I mean it's okay she's like I didn't think I could be shocked by someone's reaction but here we are yeah, these are normally very polarizing foods. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, so what's your favorite Canadian food that you hadn't ever had in the UK? Oh, that I hadn't ever had in the UK. Oh, that's a really good, really good question. I'm trying to think what I would think of as particularly Canadian. I mean, I'm going to say poutine because that's just easy. 
Yeah. Um, the concept of chips with gravy and cheese on them is is alive and well in the UK too, but not quite the same as it is here. It's usually mm. grated cheddar. And it's usually cheese or gravy. You don't do both. Um, I'm trying to think what else I've had that's uniquely Canadian that I wouldn't have had at home. Because um, maple syrup is... Would be, I love maple syrup on my porridge in the morning. Nice. But, yeah, you can get that in the UK. It's all Canadian, but you can get it in the UK. <laughs> I had... I used to work at a different... Um, a different very small college, and we had some British students who um it wasn't until March in the school year that they discovered that maple syrup is actually boiled tree sap and, and there was a moment of like we've been eating what and I'm like it's a plant like it's it's really funny that's funny <laughs> I was like I could see that no one bothered to explain this I think I think one of my problems in terms of Canadian food is because I came here and then the pandemic started right I'm not actually eating out as much as I might have liked to. So that's fair. A lot of home cooking here in Canada and a lot of hosting people in my house. Um, but I, I, the other thing is the food here is is different to the UK in terms of the range of world foods that you can find mm. here. Mexican is so much better here. It's mostly Tex-Mex in the UK. Um, and so I have to confess, I might have been gorging myself on other things. That's fair. That's fair. Authentic Mexican food is significantly better than the other kind. Um, so if you have a very long flight, are you going to pick a fiction book or a nonfiction book? Oh, I'm probably 50-50 on that. Um, I might take both, actually. I'm one of these people who tends to treat books like TV programs. Mm. As in, I don't just read one and then I don't read them sequentially. I'll have different books on the go for different moods. So That's in the same fair. way, if you might watch a trashy TV program, I might pick up a trashy book and read it for a few a few chapters. Um, but I am a big lover of a podcast. Mm. Well, so. we're, we're happy to have you. You get to be on <laughs> one and not just listen. So I, I may also listen to a podcast on a plane. That's fair. So finally, and this is the question I ask all of my guests, is oatmeal soup? No, of course it's not. I mean, okay, no. why? So porridge in Scotland, traditional porridge in Scotland would be made with water and salt and then poured into probably a, a drawer, a lined drawer and left to cool and then sliced into uh, pieces. You are the second Brit I've had on this podcast that has said that. And the two of you are the only people I have ever <laughs> heard of with an experience that porridge or, or oatmeal isn't liquid. I have to say that. I mean, it's not how I would make it. Let's be totally clear about this. This is this is back to, you know, real porridge as subsistence food kind of right. time. <laughs> but um, no, I on that basis, just out of badness, no porridge is, is not soup. Okay. Well, if it's, if it's solid, I, I feel like that's a, a, a solid answer because I mean, I think, <laughs> I think we all have to agree something would need to be liquid or liquid-ish to qualify. I think so. Thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Um, for all of you, thank you so much for listening. This has been another episode of AUSC's Open Mic.